Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine, the podcast hosted by me, Ken Levine. This is part two of my interview with my writing partner, David Isaacs. If you missed part one after you listen to this one, go back because there's a lot of really neat stuff. In that episode, we talk about breaking in, about writing separately, our goals, and also his side of the prank that I pulled on him. That was last week, and this week we continue our conversation. We talk about the value of outlines. We talk about some mistakes that we very candidly made in our career and the lessons that we learned as a result. We get into casting, we get into directing, and also David spent a year working on Mad Men, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So part two of my interview with David Isaacs coming up right now. Do you need a very detailed outline? I always try to get as much into it as I possibly can. I just am a firm believer, as I know you are, of... uh, um, Sometimes experimentation is fun, and you say, well, I don't... I'm just going to go off and see what I'm doing. But if it's, if it's certainly for something where I'm being paid or it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time, I'm going to want to have a real map of where I'm going with this thing and especially where I want to end up. That mm-hmm. to me is very, very important. Even if it's not the place I ultimately end, I want to have a destination and, and then a, um, a pathway to that destination. That, that, to me, is what an outline is. You know, an outline, I find, especially for a screenplay, is really important mm-hmm. because, you know, you only have so much time and you need to do certain things and you need to get to certain points right. in a screenplay. And if you know you need a section where the couple has to fall in love, let's say, Okay, well, if you know you only have five pages to establish that, you're going to come up with a different way of telling that story than if you have 10 pages to tell that. Mm -hmm. And you won't know whether you need five or 10 pages unless you outline and see what else is there. And you need to get a good idea of, well... 
they should be falling in love like 20 minutes into the movie <laughs> and we're an hour in already. Right, right. Well, you, it's a rule of thumb. And, and, and the other thing I, I use when I tell students about outlining and how, how important it is, the simple metaphor, the simple analogy of why we're doing this is would you go into a dense forest, a large dense forest, without a map or a compass? Or would you cross a body of, of water, a large body of water in some vessel without a compass or a way to know where true north was? You're crazy if you don't. I know Neil Simon never would outline and he would have an idea and just start writing. Writing the outline and coming up with the story and the story beats is the hardest part of the process. And you figure, wow, that sounds great. Until you hear the other part, which is he said he had a drawer full of 30-page plays that just ended Mm -hmm. because he hit a roadblock and didn't know how to fix it. (laughs) So, you know, there was all this extra work that was done all of these half-baked plays that never came to fruition. That's fine if you're Neil Simon. Uh-huh. Or it's probably the old joke. One day his mom and dad s- sat him and his brother Danny down and said, which of you wants to be Neil Simon? Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> it was an old joke. But he was a master and he was talented and, and he had had years of um, of running heavy equipment, as they say, so he could experiment. But boy, if you're starting out, you're you're going to wander around forever unless you have a map of where you're going. Can you watch our old MASH episodes and thoroughly enjoy them? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. No, I'm the same way. There's like maybe three that that I can still watch. Yeah. The rest is like, give me one more day. Oh, I can't tell you. They're, they're playing everywhere now, so I'll run into them from time to time. And you, you can go almost anywhere across it, the Me Channel and Sundance and God knows it, you know. They're on black entertainment they're, television. They're, they're, they're everywhere now. They're ev- everywhere. Yeah. But I, when I do sit and watch the ones we wrote, I'm like, let me have one more shot. <laughs> uh, this, we, we could do so much better with that or or even the way we told the story. Things like that. Whereas I'll watch the early ones that Gelbart and Gene Reynolds, you know, did, and I'll go, God, those, damn, those were good. You uh-huh. know? And uh, and they still hold up, and they're amazing. But I, you know, you're tougher on your own stuff. You know, time. I never had a chance to ask Larry, Larry Gelbart, whether he was able to watch those first four years because he might have watched those episodes and said the same thing that you and I are saying. It could be. <laughs> it could be. But, you know, for me, it's like the, if you're a musician and you go to Mozart and go, what did you really think about right. <laughs> your work? I mean, he, he's at a level that few, I think, um, were writing at. And, and, of course, that's my opinion of Larry. But I'm sure he had his own uh, doubts from right. time to time. Right. But... There got to be times where you just sat down and go, damn, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> when we were on Cheers, we're in the room with some amazing joke guys. Right. And to me, there was nobody better than Glenn Charles. Mm-hmm. And I would listen to him pitch out a joke, mm-hmm. a brilliant joke. 
And then I would try to go back and figure the thought process of how A led to B, led to C, led to D. And that was really kind of, for me, um, a course in in joke writing. Did you do that? How did you no, develop your No, I was, your, I was your frankly, I, I don't know how you felt, but our first year on Cheers was a real eye-opener for me in terms of how little I knew. And I'm sitting there with the, the, the Charles brothers who, on top of being incredibly great comedy writers, were incredibly literate men as well. So their depth of knowledge, I felt, was far greater than me. And then, of course, David Lloyd, who was one of the great, great uh, wits, and, and, sure. and Jerry Belson. And it was pretty uh, daunting right away for me. I was more cowed by it, I think, than you were. And what what worked for me was sheer osmosis. I think years of then sitting, writing those cheers and being in their company and hearing it again and again overcame my doubts about myself to the point where I, maybe that's the old 10,000 hours or something, mm-hmm. where I just literally, it kind of started to make sense to me. I don't think I broke it down quite in the same way because I was more in awe of it. <laughs> I know you were too. Yeah. We both were. Yeah. We both look at each other and go, where did that come from? Because he would literally, remember how he would be sitting at his desk and he would just like explode back in his chair. Right. And, and have, have a little laugh. And yeah. laugh. And you go, and it well, here it like, comes. Here it comes. <laughs> and it would be great and we'd be all be laughing. And, and, and that would be the, the, the solution or the joke. So to me, it was alchemy, but it was a fact, you know, once again, I say this to the student, the fact that I hung in there and went through all the, ne- the negativity about myself or the, the sort of inability to be able to imitate that or, or at any level or, or, or be able to kind of walk in one day and do it, it, it just was a matter of staying with it. And then it, two, three years later, I, I, th- I, th- I think I got it. You know, I never got tired of writing episodes of Cheers. No, me neither. That I loved. Yeah, it was 40 episodes of Cheers that that we wrote. We wrote, I think, 19 or 20 mashes. And by the time we left MASH, I was ready. Yeah. You know, it seemed like there was every hot show, every cold show, every visiting general, everyone had slept with everyone else. But for whatever reason... The, the characters and the situations on Cheers, I, I always felt those characters were really fresh. And one of my favorite episodes, ironically, is the one that was experimental. We went into Glenn and Les, and this is, I believe, the sixth or seventh season, something like that. I, I remember because Rebecca was there. Yeah. You know, it was, it, it was I think it was a, I'm going to say the sixth season. Yeah. yeah. And we had an idea. Frazier was engaged to be married to Lilith. And we thought, what if we do a bachelor party show? But, you know, Cheers spent uh, a lot of time sprinkling in bar talk where the guys would just get off on a conversation. What is the sweatiest movie? That sort of thing. And we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do a pretty freeform episode where there's just a lot of bar talk and the only story is that 
Frazier begins to have doubts as to whether or not he should get married and by the end of the show decides, yeah, I'm going to go through with it. That was it. That was the only plot. And I remember you and I went to Glenn and Les and proposed this and they said, okay, do it. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, it was really fun. I was happy to get back to outlines the next one, but it was, it was really fun. And I'm really happy with how that episode well, came out. Once again, I guess I, I bring up the disclaimer of don't try to do this at home. Right. Yeah. Kind of stuff. Yeah. But, we had written 30 by this time. But I got to say, <laughs> pound for pound of all the 40 we wrote, and I'm proud of all of them, and some we were nominated for, for awards with. Frazier's Bachelor Party uh, is my favorite episode that we wrote to yeah. this day. Yeah. I just love that episode. It has it has lines that that just I hear them again, and I'm like, wow, that's that's, <laughs> that's funny, and and just the the whole story and everything, the way it worked, and the way the guys it was a kind of guys show, and even though we had all the women in the show at Lilith's bachelorette party, right. and those things kind of gelled at the end of the show because you you have to have some kind of denouement. But I, I just love that episode. You know, the other thing I think it taught me was that going back to don't try this at home, we had been doing it long enough that we both have kind of an inner clock. Yeah. So we both knew when, okay, it's time to move this along. Right. It's time to to go on to something else. We can't spend seven pages with everybody talking about how they lost their virginity. No, you still have to tell a story. Right. And you have still have to have things move forward in in the story so that we need it. But but we had that. We had that I think in innately in our DNA. So or we we had learned how to do that. So when when it, when we needed to do that, we did it, you know. And we had enough story that we could kind of hit on those moments. Okay, so an important lesson that we learned was we we left Cheers for a year or so to create a series for Mary Tyler Moore. And I've talked about this a little bit in the past. Oh, uh, it was, bring back some of those yeah, great old days. <laughs> great old days. Let's just say it was difficult and, and it was disappointing. But one of the big mistakes, and there were a lot of mistakes that I think, you could I dole think... out everywhere, but one of the biggest mistakes was a mistake that we made by not sticking to our guns. And by that, you and I came up with a premise for the show. And our original premise was that it was going to be set in like a tabloid newspaper, but that Mary was going to be the editor and that her ex-husband, who was kind of a Cary Grant, because we were sort of thinking front page, uh, you know, his girl Friday. His yeah. Um, but we thought, okay, that's going to be different and it will give Mary a chance to play a very different character than we've seen her before. We went and we pitched that to CBS and, and they hated it. They said, no, no, people are not going to accept Mary Tyler Moore as the boss. They're not going to like her. You have to come up with something where she's a little bit more likable. And so we twisted the idea around where she was a high fashion journalist, 
having to go to work at a tabloid and that her boss, the editor, was the Cary Grant type of scoundrel where you didn't know whether he was actually just pushing her for her own good or he was a sleazeball. And it wasn't as good, and I think the show would have been so much better, and Mary probably would have been so much happier to play a role where she was in control as opposed to a role where she was sort of playing an extension of the Mary Richards character. And um, and I kick ourselves. Yeah. You know, we were young at, at the time. If it were today, we would say no. Yeah. No, we, we, were, we don't want to do we that. Were, we were, let's just say it. We were seduced by the fact of having a major star and, and of course, you know, 13 on the air and all the other wonderful right. things that came with it. I would agree with you. We made many mistakes and I would go beyond that to say that was the mistake. Uh-huh. That was the that was, that, that was the that fatal was flaw. The fatal flaw because at least what I think, and this is hindsight, of course, but what I think our instincts were, and instinct is a very important word for a writer, what our instinct was, was to move that woman, uh, the character she had played in Mary, not Mary Richards herself, but the woman herself, uh, from a, a woman who was finding herself in business and in, and in life to a person who had had some success and, and what is the price of success in, in some ways. What we did was we took that character and we sort of made her a failure mm-hmm. and having to maintain her dignity in a in a sort of lesser place than WJM uh, yeah. was. So we, we made a fatal structural narrative flaw by putting her in a situation where she was kind of treading water. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, I'm saying this looking back on it, but the lesson we learned and the lesson it was a big lesson for us to learn and we paid a big price <laughs> to learn it. Um, we made a, a big psychic price to learn it was that if you must go with your own instincts, don't let yourself be talked out of it by people who are not going to be doing the writing and who are guessing at what is going to work as opposed to you being there doing it every day you're the one that has to write it you're the one that has to live and die with it and from that we learned if we don't feel what we're doing is right there's no point in doing it yeah for the money and or for the prestige or the fame or whatever it's a lesson that we should have learned earlier because our first pilot that we also produced was a pilot for nbc And I had read a great book called Something Wonderful Right Away by Jeffrey Sweet, which was about the beginning of improv in Chicago in the 50s, the Compass Players, and eventually Second City, et cetera, et cetera. And that led to Mike Nichols and Elaine May teaming up. And and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do a series about a Nichols and May type of relationship these two people that work together, and also this was before when Harry met Sally, I thought it'd be kind of interesting, can a couple that are attracted to each other be friends and not lovers? Anyway, that's what we went into with NBC. 
and they liked the idea, but they liked the idea because they had read a book called Semi-Tough, and they wanted to do a series about a love triangle. So they said to us, well, we can kind of work that in. What if she has a boyfriend? And then we have this triangle situation. And again, what we should have said was, no, that's not the series. Those are not the stories that we're telling. But, you know, we were young and it was our first pilot. And and we said, okay, it was a bitch to write because... The Mike Nichols character was never a threat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So you have this this idiotic triangle where the guy is never a threat. What the hell are we doing? Right. We made a lot of rookie, we'll call it rookie mistakes. Right. On that one, and, but that's the point. You learn. You 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 learn how to not only write them but to produce them and and um, do them well and cast them, which is the key. Now, you have a very keen eye for casting. What are some of the things that you, that you look for in casting? No, you really do. Well, if you're doing comedy, are they funny? Uh-huh. <laughs> are these people, the people that you're reading, find funny people? I By mean, the way, this is not something that the network is concerned with. No. It, no. It, are they, are they, be- they are. are they beautiful? Yeah, that that's that's what the, they're attractiveness be is yeah. really their number one, or charisma, I suppose, is their number one criterion. And and my feeling is, boy, go out and find people who hopefully are attractive and funny, but number one, funny. I mean, Seinfeld is the perfect example of knowing what you're looking for in casting. They always found the funniest people, not the right. best looking people, right? Not you wouldn't look at that show and go, boy, was that a beautiful cast? Or, <laughs> or were all the, the the girls that Jerry dated were all beautiful? But at the same time, Larry and 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 Jerry were were able to kind of give them quirks that made their beauty secondary to who they were. That's the number one thing I look for. And and of course, to me, is the character. Is not trying. If actors try not to be, they're not trying to be funny. They're naturally um, right. They don't reactive. know. They don't know they're in a comedy. They don't know they're in a comedy. Yeah, that's something you don't find all, a lot. You have to find those actors are especially men in sitcom. That's why Ted Danson to this day is was the great. I'll bend the metaphor here and go was the Wyatt Earp of, of uh, <laughs> light comedy, the greatest lawman, the best lawman that ever walked the West. Uh-huh. He just again and again and again proved that he knew how to do light comedy. And, and why weren't there more guys like that and uh, like Ted? It's hard. Yeah. And generally, if you are really good looking and good with light comedy, you wind up in movies yeah. <laughs> really quick. To me, a good yardstick was always how fast in a scene would an actor or an actress go to anger. Uh-huh. The, the more they could delay out-and-out anger, the better <laughs> the comic actor they were. That's something I learned, I think, watching Ted and, 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 and watching Shelley and watching those people constantly again and again. Uh, uh, certainly on, on Frasier, you watch masterfully their ability to be in conflict but not go 
immediately to being angry. One of the things that I feel you and I were so fortunate in our career is that throughout our career, we got to write for some of the greatest actors of their age. And it was incredible. It was just such a privilege to write for people like David Hyde Pierce and Kelsey Grammer and Ted Danson and Shelley Long and Alan Alda and Tom Hanks and on and on and on, Nancy Travis. And I could just go on and on. But boy, they made us look good, didn't they? (laughs) You know, it was a breakthrough for me. I, I, I I think you were the first, if you remember this, you pointed this out, and it, and it made perfect sense to me because I couldn't quite put my finger on why I was enjoying it so much. But the first MASH that we wrote, when we went to see it, when we went to see Gene Reynolds direct it, right, and we saw the scene, and it was so much better than we had written it. I mean, it was, it was more it was than I words. expected yeah, from it. Right, right. And you pointed out, I remember, that say, it's because Alan is so, it's like he's doing something we didn't even give him credit for doing in the scene. We were writing his lines, but we didn't know what he was going to be doing physically or the expression on his face. And it's like, look how much better that is because he's playing Hawkeye. And I remember thinking, going, yeah, you're right. It's like, <laughs> wow, it's so much better because of him. So uh, that's just, that was, the, that was the gift that we were given in in, in, in Beyond the fact that we had a very nice career and 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 success, relative success was the people that we got to write for. It was just that was just you know we shouldn't have we shouldn't have been as lucky as we were. <laughs> we weren't we weren't that nice. So we, we, we <laughs> yeah. determined. No, there's a lot we of were, very we were good writers. To be that lucky. A lot of very good writers who had to write for Alex Karras. So yes. uh, you yes. know we we were very may he fortunate. rest. Yes. May he rest in peace. Uh, <laughs> without CTE, I suppose. Okay. When you write, what do you picture? Do you picture it on the air? Do you picture the filming of the show? What are you picturing? Or anything? (laughs) No, I'm, I'm usually picturing, for me, the scene itself. I don't have your eye for where the camera should be. I'm not artistic that way. I, I just I'm not I'm not underselling myself. I'm just not. I don't have that gene. So I'm kind of like in a general sense of what's going on and where the characters in proximity to each other. But I'm not sort of picturing it fully formed. I picture it on the air. I picture wow. I picture watching it. Well, that helps me think of the characters as the characters and not the actors. So it allows me to think this is Sam and Diane. Well, now I know. It's, now, it's not Ted and Shelley. Now know. I know why we were so good, because you were directing it while we were writing it. <laughs> <laughs> that, one, that makes perfect sense why we were such a good team. You never had any desire to direct? No, no. I, I just knew I could do this one thing. And to answer questions about it, you know, my joke is on any given day, I like to answer three or four questions, Tops. <laughs> That's right. And, and in fact, watching, this is a whole month. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's taken up a whole and, month. And watching, and watching, uh, watching you direct, watching anyone direct, I'm just struck by how, ma- how much detail goes into th- from the page to the stage. It's an undertaking that is completely different than the writing because now you're 
out there on a wire. You know, you, you're controlling it when you're writing it. But when you're bringing it onto the stage, there's a lot of things you didn't see or you, you also have to explore the space. What, what do we have here that we can use, that we can add to? I just don't have that eye. I just, I know I don't. And I just didn't, I mean, I think I could talk to actors in terms of what we want from the scene, but the getting there, that to me is, takes a certain amount of, um, I can see this. And so that makes perfect sense of what you said about yourself, that you, you move so nicely into directing. Okay. You moved on and both of us were friends with Matthew Weiner. Mm -hmm. We both worked with him on Becker and then he goes off and does Mad Men and it's season two and I'm doing Dodger talk full time. (laughs) (laughs) And you get a call from Matt to work on Mad Men. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what it was like working on Mad Men. Well, that's a, that's a, you could talk about it for a long time, um, to just be as brief as I can be and, and get some, uh, some anecdotal stuff in there. It was a new experience for me. I had never, while I was very confident that we understood how to write dramatic moments because we had worked on MASH and we understood how the comedy or the situation earned you the right to have a dramatic moment, that I understood. But to be fully dramatic for, for 60 minutes or for you know 48 minutes with commercials, that was different for me in terms of laying out the scenes and how scenes didn't have to necessarily deliver jokes as much as they had to deliver intent and the bigger, deeper sense of the, the character's journey. Matt is a masterful artist when it comes to the world he created or he's, he's created in other ways. And so I, I watched him quite a bit, even though he wasn't always around. I took to it, I think, fairly well. Uh, for me, it was tough because I'd never been on anything that was so, uh, the word I use is authored, where, where it really was like a novel, like your, the detail mm-hmm. and the character arc and the, uh, you know, I I'm, 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 I'm tend to work in closed episodes that are done and then you move on to the next episode. There's very little, there's sort of ongoing story and ongoing relationships going on as they were in Cheers. Right. But there's not plot. The more the serialized yeah, there's episodic, not plot yeah. movement on, on a big level. And watching him and seeing how he was laying out the season, because he knew at the end of that season that it was going to end um, Don Draper's journey at that to that point was going to be to the um, Cuban Missile Crisis. And right. This was of, season two, I believe, season right? Two. Mm-hmm. And the sort of existential meaning of all of that and how it reflected into Don's life and how suddenly the, the very life you had built as an adult and, and the family and, and, and the business and all the things you had done could come to an end like that because people in places you would never go could throw suddenly be throwing missiles at each other. And it was all... It, it, it turns meaning on its ear. And that's where he was going with it. And that's where Don's life was going to go. His marriage is is going to start to break up. Uh, Sterling Cooper is going to be sold. All of those things are events that lead you to a moment of existential crisis for Don. Okay. And that's that was the season I worked on. And I worked with some incredibly great writers. Marty Noxon, who is who's just an absolute... 
dynamo of uh, story and and uh, originality. And uh, Maria Jacquemitin and her husband uh, Andre Jacquemitin, who are great, great hour craftsmen, and uh, Lisa Albert, who's was wonderful, and um, Robin Veith. I mean, it was just a very great group. Strange enough, you hear it, it was mostly women. So it's the first time I worked in that atmosphere, and I loved it. What I learned was really the deeper storytelling. I think that's what I got out of it. That late in my life and that late in my career. And I think it's led me to uh, certainly helped me in the new career I have, which is teaching. But also, I think as a writer, it, it was a great, great experience. It was tough. It's hard to work with someone. I'll be very frank. It's hard to work with someone who is in a sense, really needs no other people to kind of <laughs> <laughs> to get him where he needs to go. That's not to diminish anybody because they were all, he would tell you that they were all very valuable to him. But it's hard to kind of, you either can work into someone's mind that way or you can't. And I, I found myself not able to do that. Yeah, yeah. So it, for me, it was a Because you're not of, writing what you think something should be. You're writing what you suppose someone else is thinking. Right, yeah. right. And, and it's on such a deep level that you, you have to really work at it. You, you really have to... Maybe the second year, if I'd come back, I would have been better. But it, for me, it was just a, a little bit too existential. Uh-huh. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough, if you want to say there was a theme to it for me, too. Well, David, this is great. Thanks much. My I'll, pleasure. Uh, have you on again. Great. Thanks for It's really hard to get them, by the yeah. way. This is, yeah. you know, the hardest guest I have. It's like, yeah. what is this podcast? Who, who, how many people are going to yeah. listen to this? Yeah. Do, I, do I make any money? I, I need, I need, to, at this point in my life, it really has to pay off for me. Uh huh. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I had to call his agent, you know, who's my agent. When you play this, do I get residuals for. Yeah, yeah. If if somebody listens to this episode 17 times, you get a nickel. Okay. <laughs> See, this is the kind of honesty that keeps you writing with the same person for 40 years. That's right, and it's why I do podcasts. Thanks, bud. <laughs> Take care, man. And there you have it. That is my interview with David Isaacs, comedy writer. Thanks so much to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, as always, and to Howard Hoffman and John Wilford. If you want to get in touch with me, I do have an email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Also, I am on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Please subscribe. Please give me a five-star review. I know, I'm just, you know, I'm asking so much of you people. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.